morning. I am so glad so many of you are watching online today. I think this video this morning is a great reminder to us that we are living in a day of fear and in a day of uncertainty. And folks who maybe wouldn't normally watch an online Easter service this year, they may be interested in watching. And let's face it, a lot of us have a lot more time on our hands and we're looking for things to do. So invite somebody next week to watch our online service. Tell them to, how to hook up with it. And just invite some people, encourage them, because I think you'll be pleased with the response that you get this year. So today is Palm Sunday. And I have a question for you as we begin this morning. What about the guys with the donkeys? You may remember Jesus' instructions to them in Matthew chapter 21. He tells his disciples, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Luke, in a parallel account, tells us that there were two guys with these donkeys. So what about the guys with the donkeys? I don't know what their names were. I don't know what they looked like. I don't know if they were Jews or Gentiles. But I, if I ever had a chance to meet them in heaven, I think I would like to ask them some questions. How did you know that it was Jesus that needed the donkeys? Did an angel appear to you in your lentils? Did you have a dream about it? Did somebody send you a text with a donkey emoji? Was it hard for you to give your donkeys up to Jesus? I mean, I know sometimes it's hard for me when God asks me to give something. Sometimes I pretend that I don't hear him. Were these your only donkeys? Were they pets? Did they have names? How old were they? Were they work animals? Did you get them back? And then what was it like when you saw Jesus riding your donkey into town? Were you surprised? Did you have any idea that he was going to do that? Were you proud? I mean, did you poke a fellow onlooker and say, that's my donkey that he's riding into town. Or were you put out because you didn't get done that day what you were going to do with your donkeys? You know, I'm like that sometimes when God interrupts my plans and keeps me from doing what I thought I needed to get done. Sometimes I get put out. Did you have any idea at all that your donkeys would be known throughout history? That all four of the Gospels would talk about your donkeys? In your wildest imagination, did you ever dream that someone would be talking about your donkeys, a pastor in North Georgia, 2,000 years later? Today, I want to invite you on a journey with me as we look at the beginning of what is known in much of the world as the Holy Week. Holy Week kind of starts with Palm Sunday, and then it ends with Easter. 
The pieces are in place. Pontius Pilate is in charge. Somewhere there are some cross beams and a bin with some nails. A whip hangs in the corner of a barracks in an executioner's room. Barabbas is in prison. The high priest are anxiously trying to figure out what are we going to do with this troublemaker, Jesus of Nazareth. Everything is set. Let's travel with Jesus on these last days of his life. Perhaps the Thursday before Palm Sunday is where we're going to start this morning. And perhaps on that Thursday, Jesus is, according to Luke chapter 19, a parallel account, Jesus is doing some last-minute things. There's a conversion of Zacchaeus. And then there's kind of a last-minute story about how to use money. And then on Friday, we're told that he heads to some friends of his house, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. They are close friends of his. And it's just not a matter of him finding some lodging when he goes to see them. I think he's seeking comfort. And he's seeking encouragement. Jesus knows what the coming week holds. There's going to be a lot of pain. And there's going to be death. So he's seeking companionship and comfort knowing what he was going to face. So on Friday he probably arrives at their house. Saturday would have been the Sabbath, so it would have been a day of rest. And then Sunday morning, Jesus gets up early, and he gives those instructions to his disciples. He asks them to run an errand, to go find a donkey. You know, from Bethany to Jerusalem would have only been a couple of miles. It would have been about a 3,000-foot ascent on those couple of miles. But this is something that he has done three times a year. Since he was 12 years old. But today he chooses a donkey instead of going on foot. And this trip was different. Because he was no longer going to Jerusalem to be a worshiper. He was coming to be the king of kings. You know it's interesting that they actually did a census in Jerusalem about 10 years after the the. the, Dates that we're talking about today. And 10 years later, they said that there were 260,000 lambs sacrificed during the Passover. If you figure that approximately, and this is what the historians do, that there was one lamb, Scripture says, one lamb could be sacrificed for as many as 10 people then that computes to about 2 million people coming into Jerusalem for the Passover. And there's no reason to think that 10 years earlier when Jesus was there to celebrate the Passover, that there wouldn't have been the same number of people. So literally, the city is bustling with people as Jesus comes. And as we look at that day in Jerusalem, I want us just to kind of focus in on three symbols this morning to help us remember the lessons of Palm Sunday. The donkey a palm branch, and some rocks. These are all pretty common items, but they remind us of the uncommon journey of Jesus. 
They represent the way that he went above and beyond our understanding or abilities in order to, that we might come alive to his life. So let's take a look at the donkey first. What do you see? What do you think of when you see a, a donkey? Stubbornness, right? Aren't they known for being stubborn? And when we think of Jesus making a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it's kind of a logical question to ask. Why a donkey? I mean, if I was going to be riding into Jerusalem as a king, I wouldn't have picked a donkey, would you? Probably not. At first, it might seem that riding a donkey into Jerusalem was just kind of a, a practical matter. Maybe he was tired of walking. The donkey just happened to be convenient. There were no horses around. There was no camels still available at Rena Beast. Just a donkey. But you know, that's not the reason he chose a donkey. Not because it was practical, not because it was available. It was because it was part of God's bigger plan. You see, you go hundreds of years earlier to the Old Testament and Zechariah predicts that the Messiah, that Jesus would come riding into town on a donkey. Matthew quoted Zechariah when he was talking about Palm Sunday and I'm going to pick up where I left off earlier. Matthew chapter 21 verse 4. If anyone says anything to you, Say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Jesus specifically wanted a donkey. What to us may seem like a plan B as a practical solution to an immediate situation was actually a specific fulfillment of a prophecy that was made hundreds of years earlier. Let's take another look at the donkey there on your screen. You have to admit they're kind of cute, but I wouldn't call them majestic. I wouldn't call them royal. The top brass of the Roman army, they're not riding donkeys. They are riding horses or white stallions with all the beautiful tack on them, designating them as, as, as something special. Jesus didn't come in on a beautiful chariot either. He rode a donkey. And you know while that donkey kind of represents the humility of Jesus? The ironic twist is that by riding on this donkey, Jesus was actually proclaiming himself as the Messiah as he fulfilled that Old Testament prophecy. Why? Because all of those dedicated Jews in Jerusalem at that time, they would have known exactly what this was about. That Jesus came riding in on a donkey to fulfill that Old Testament prophecy. So that simple act connects the past by fulfilling that prophecy. 
And it pointed to the future of Jesus as a king, not as an earthly king like they were thinking, but the true king who would reign forever in God's story of love and forgiveness and grace and redemption. The Messiah who the Jews have been waiting for forever. And he comes riding on a donkey. How about the palm branch? Let's talk about the palm branch for a moment. Imagine you've loaded your family into the car. And you're going in the direction of the ice cream shop. And your kids are so excited. I mean, it's a hot summer day. They can just taste that ice cold ice cream. The sweet goodness of that ice cream. But then you drive right by the ice cream shop. And eventually you end up at the airport. And you unload their bags out of the trunk that they didn't know that you have packed. And you take a tr- and you get on a plane to make a trip to Paris. Now you would think they would be excited, right? It's the trip of a lifetime. But no. They're disappointed. Because they thought they were going to the ice cream shop. It wasn't what they expected. It didn't fit their idea of what should happen. Now admittedly, most of us don't have a trip to Europe in our back pockets. But the story gives us a glimpse into what happened to Jesus' disciples and his followers on Palm Sunday. They are cheering with excitement. They thought their king had arrived. They could almost taste victory as Jesus rides into town. So let's pick up the story again in verse 8. Matthew chapter 21, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. And they asked, who is this? And the crowds, they answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So the crowd, they begin to wave the palm branches. Why palm branches? Well, palm branches were a traditional symbol of victory. They were often used to depict a a victory, a victorious battle, a campaign that was successful. They would wave them for returning soldiers who were victorious. They were often depicted on coins and important buildings to designate those victories. Solomon had palm branches carved on doors and posts of his magnificent temple. So this is where we get the name Palm Sunday. They waved the branches and they spread their coats for their new king. They could almost taste the victory. Finally, the Messiah had arrived. Their rescuer was here. The political kingdom that they thought Jesus was going to set up, it was finally going to happen. And then this, like those kids expecting ice cream, they were sorely disappointed. Because Jesus was coming to set up a spiritual kingdom. 
And his victory would be over sin and death. And it would be a victory that made it possible for everybody to have a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Now obviously as he rides into town that morning, there are a lot of people cheering him. And there are a lot of people that are excited. But not everybody was excited. Jesus had a lot of enemies. And they were not too thrilled about what was going on, these religious leaders and these Pharisees. They weren't thrilled about his popularity. Don't miss out on the fact of the amount of courage that it took Jesus to ride into town knowing that he had enemies. This would be like our president, Donald Trump, riding into Tehran. There would be many common people there that might be thinking that a democracy was being set up, but there would be a lot of people that would see an opportunity to kill him. So the disciples and the followers that day, a lot of them still didn't understand what was going on. And then how about the rocks? Palm Sunday is really kind of a snapshot, so to speak, that represents all of Jesus' life. His love, his sacrifice, his commitment, they were all kind of on display that day. When he rode into Jerusalem... He wasn't riding in to get more support. This is not a campaign rally. Probably a lot of you have been to a campaign rally and there's, there's posters and there's hats and there's banners and there's cheering and there's flowery introductory speeches. But this wasn't a campaign rally. Jesus wasn't coming here to gain more support. He wasn't looking to get elected. That wasn't his goal. He knew why he was coming. And it was to die on a cross. And only days later, the same crowd that's shouting, Hosanna, was going to be screaming, crucify him. But that didn't change Jesus that day. Didn't change his purpose or his actions. Because his purpose was not dependent on human approval or praise that day. Jesus makes this clear over in the book of Luke, which has a parallel account about Palm Sunday. And it says this, When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, I don't know about you, but we've had some painted rocks at my house. And my kids have had some pet rocks before. But we never had any rocks that talked. We never had any rocks that would scream out. So what does Luke mean when Jesus says, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out? I mean, isn't it kind of impossible for rocks to talk? The phrase refers to a biblical tradition that there's a strong sense 
that nature participates in declaring God's existence. So the point with this kind of strange phrase to us that the stones will cry out was Jesus was saying, if the disciples don't talk about me, then it's going to be necessary for this stony terrain here in this desert to take their place and talk about me. So Jesus' purpose wasn't to be liked by the majority of the people. It was to offer his life as a sacrifice so that everyone in all of creation could worship God in freedom and truth. So here's the question for us this morning. How does this apply to us today? What are, what are the practical implications of Palm Sunday? The great evangelist Billy Graham was quoted many times as saying, The greatest mission field in our country today is our local church. The people already sitting in our churches. Now I don't know whether that statement is true or not. But there's one thing that I know. There are many people who know what to say, how to say it, and even how to act it. But when the rubber truly meets the road, there is no personal relationship with Jesus Christ. No salvation, just empty words. On Friday, they're shouting, crucify him, give us Barabbas. We want him. Why the change from Palm Sunday to that Friday? Well, I think there are many possible reasons. One reason is simply that their words didn't match their heart. They possessed a casual, not a committed faith. They were what we might call cultural Christians. I think we have those today. Yeah, I'm an American. I'm a patriot. I love the red, white, and blue. I love God and apple pie too. They had religion like so many people today, but they missed the person, Jesus. So how do we have a committed faith? How can it be real? How can it be sincere? How can it be consistent in all that we do? I want to offer you three keys this morning to such a faith. The first key is this. A committed faith is not self-centered. It's Christ-centered. And I know that sounds so obvious, right? Like, yeah, of course. But isn't this what we do a lot of times? Here, God, here's my calendar. Here's my agenda. I don't know where I'll fit you in, but maybe I can fit you in just a little bit over here. Maybe I can give you an hour on Sunday morning. And we just kind of pull God or we turn things over to God when he's convenient or he's useful. You know, he's kind of like a spare tire, you know. We pull it out of the trunk when we really need it, when there's some kind of crisis going on. I received an article this week from a friend of mine. and It was a Barna study. And basically the gist of this Barna study was since the COVID-19 crisis has, has kind of come out in the month of March, the results of their study a lot more people are praying. 
And while I was looking that up, I also did a little research on my own and came up with a University of Southern California study. Now, their study is not religious by any sense of the imagination, but they were talking about the things that they've seen change the most in the American public since the COVID-19 crisis has hit. And their conclusions were... Number one is Americans are washing their hands a lot more, that Americans are social distancing. Number three, that many more Americans are working from home. And their fourth one, Americans are praying more. Isn't it always interesting that when a crisis happens, we tend to turn to Jesus more, but it's not really because we're really turning to him It's because it's still really about me and I'm being inconvenienced and I'm scared and I need you, Jesus. These people here that praised Jesus as they passed by, they probably had several reasons for praising him and some of them were very selfish. First, because of the miracles they had seen. He had healed the sick and raised the dead and they praised him because he was serving them. Secondly, because they thought Jesus was setting up a political kingdom. It was about them. Finally, the Romans were going to be kicked out of Palestine. And so they praised Jesus because what Jesus was going to do for them. And a few days later, when there's a disfigured and beaten Jesus, that man didn't look like a deliverer. He didn't look like a conqueror. As words were said about him, they quickly bought, brought it, bought into the lies. They bought into the, the, all the things that were being said and they quickly changed their position because it was about me, me, me. Let's make sure on this Palm Sunday and every day, let's make sure we're about the King of Kings. A second committed key is this. A committed faith is relationship-driven. If you were alive, do you know where you were on March 16th, 1968? There's a group of men who will never forget that day. They were part of Task Force Barker. They had a tough assignment that day. It was a search-and-destroy mission in the Quan Nai province of South Vietnam. The group was mostly inexperienced. They were kind of hastily trained. And for a month leading up to the particular event that happened on this particular day in March, they had achieved no military success on their patrols. In fact, they had suffered many demoralizing casualties, booby traps, They had also experienced guerrilla attacks on them and the constant rain and the landmines and the oppressive heat and the loss of sleep. The difficulty of not knowing what their enemy looked like because the Vietnamese and the Viet Cong looked the same. You couldn't tell the difference At one point, the commander of Charlie Company, a young lieutenant by the name of William Cowley, herded villagers together. When Charlie Company moved out that particular day, they discovered not a single combatant. 
Nobody fired on them. They found only men, women, and children. And what happened next? There's no debate about. 600 Vietnamese men, women, old men, women, and children were killed. They were killed in various ways. Some troops just stood in the doorways of straw huts, opened up with automatic fire. Some were shot as they were running, some of them carrying babies. As I mentioned to you earlier, the commander, Lieutenant William Cathy, they brought people together, 20 to 40 people, machine guns, grenades to finish them off. It took the entire morning to kill those 600 people. They estimate that at least 50 people participated, but some 200 soldiers saw the slaughter. So you would think within a week, right, that dozens of soldiers would have been reporting the atrocities that happened that day. Not, that, not the case. It was over a year before it was finally reported. Then it was only because of Rod Rittenhauer, who had moved into civilian life, actually contacted some people and let them know what happened. Only six people were ever tried, and only Lieutenant Caffey was convicted. It's not my desire to be a judge or to point guilt at men who were trying to survive on the ragged edge. I admire any man who served this country. The massacre at Mylai is a classic illustration of psychic numbing which often occurs in a group. It happens when individuals forsake their conscience and instead of crisp thinking and a moral compass, the entire group loses their way. That's what happened to those soldiers in Southeast Asia that day. It's what happened at Jonestown. It's what happened at Watergate. And it's what happened that morning when people were shouting, Hosanna, begin to shout, crucify him. Many of those who had gathered to throw their coats and palm branches onto the street and shout praises did so because it was the popular thing to do at the time. For a moment, it was trendy. Perhaps they began with sincere motives, but others did it because they saw that other people were doing it. And later they began to shout, crucify him, because it was the thing to do. Just like with those soldiers. They lost their way, so to speak. For a brief moment, it was a trendy thing to do to make a mass murderer like Barabbas a hero. In our own lives, a committed faith only comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. One where every single day you are asking the Holy Spirit to fill you where you're asking the Holy Spirit every morning, what is it you want me to do today? How can I glorify you? Show me the way. That's what has to happen. We have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the third key is this. A committed faith is not swayed or blocked by personal trials or circumstances. At the parade, it was trendy to offer praise. Everybody was doing it. But at the trial, it could cost you your life. 
Many of us expect when we come to Jesus, we expect everything to go well. Everything will be good. But maybe there'll be a little bit of bad stuff. But overall, we think my life is going to go great when I'm a Christian. So when the bottom drops out, we often ask God, why? What's going on? Did you forget about me? Thinking is not supposed to happen this way. And if our faith is based on circumstances, if it's based on situations, we'll never be committed. It will always be a casual faith. You know, in my lifetime, I've gone to a lot of big Christian events, some of them held in big arenas. And in some of those events, there's thousands and thousands of people, and they're praising God, and they're raising their hands, and they're swaying, and they're excited about Jesus. They're excited about what Jesus is doing in their life. And then a couple days later, the excitement's gone, the emotion's gone. And they're not nearly so excited about Jesus. It's not about emotions. It's not about circumstances. A committed faith takes the good with the bad. Knowing that all we're ever promised is that in the midst of our good and in the midst of our bad, Jesus is never going to leave us. He'll stand with us. Let me close with this. I read a blog this week by a lady by the name of Christian Welch. She had an image, and the image is there on your screen, from some words that her children had written on their wooden playground. The words there are, Welcome, do not enter. You know those words really don't match, do they? They're kind of contradictions. Welcome and do not enter are opposites. They're contradictory. My question is, how often are we like those kids? How often are we like the crowd on Palm Sunday? Hosanna and a few days later, crucify him. How often are we like, welcome, and then days later, do not enter? Our words and actions tell the truth of what we believe. Did you get that? Our words and our actions tell the truth of what we believe. That ought to be us. The Christian, our Christianity, our faith should be replicated in everything that we say and do. No exceptions. No excuses. Is that true in your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. and Father, we thank you for Palm Sunday and we thank you for what it means in the story of Jesus. We thank you for the, the eternal life that is promised to us because of Easter and the resurrection that's going to happen a few days later. Father, I pray for all of us this morning. Father, it's so easy for our actions not to match our words. It's so easy for us to be like the crowd there that one day they were excited about Jesus and a few days later they didn't want anything to do with Him. And maybe we don't quite phrase it like that and we certainly wouldn't say crucify Him. But how often do we make excuses and Father, we justify the things we do that we know don't match up with Scripture and are not the things that You're asking us to do. 
Help us to seek your face each and every day. Help us to have a committed relationship to you, not a casual one. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.